0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information, or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Our
1: reading this morning comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1-10. through Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ for if anyone thinks he has something when he has nothing he deceives himself but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the perfect word of God. He who has ears, let him hear. You may be seated.
0: All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be today. I think that for so much of what we try to accomplish either in this room or even as we begin to study God's word, so much of that is filtered through our own experiences that we have had with family. In fact, if we look through God's word, so much of the way that he relates to us is through family. We, We give him those terms as God the Father, God the Son, and so those Really, those experiences that we've all had uh, help us really interpret and kind of filter through how we understand God's Word. Now, it's fair to say that not all of us have had the same experiences when it comes to family, right? Some of you were blessed and grew up in what we would assume is something like the Brady Brunch. Uh, Mom and dad were there. They took every opportunity to explain every good thing you did and bad thing you did with this, this life experience, and they brought everything together in this neat, nice bow and Everybody always lived happily ever after, you never fought, you never got along, and if you did, it was probably Marcia's fault. Either way, we, we attempt to kind of, we, we, some people have those experiences, however, others had a different experiences. Maybe your experience was less like the Brady Bunch, more like maybe an episode of Cops. Um, it, it was not always pleasant, it did not always go well, and some of you, maybe you made it on the show, and I'm sure there's the tattoo to prove it somewhere, but... Either way, there's these extremes of how we begin to interpret things. Now, it's also fair to say that most of us, were somewhere in between, right? We had our good moments as well as we had our moments we don't really like to talk about that much. But in those experiences, what they do is they begin to form the way that we begin to view and understand the world. And so this works for us in how we not only relate to our own children or our own families or the people around us, but it also influences how we begin to look at God's Word. We begin to read those things. We begin to experience life uh, through those experiences. And so much of what we're going to look at today kind of brings back that. And we'll even look at how Paul, in many ways, relates to the Philippians like family. And so... If I begin to think of my own experiences, there, certainly, there, were, there were high points and there were certainly low points, um, but those individuals in my family, they helped me kind of perceive what life was going to be like or how I should approach life, and in my life, there was undoubtedly the greatest male influence in my life was my grandfather. Um, if, we, if he was alive today and we sat and we talked about how we look at life, how we approach life, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, so much of us just tracked right down the same road uh, and so much of how i approach appropriate or the, approach my own life is how he did uh, so he was born and grew up in a small east texas town like as deep east texas as you could get that's where he was at he grew up in the town called alba we use the term town loosely uh, it was more like just a place where people kind of intersected roads um, and so that's where he grew up he, they were poor beyond poor his father had 19 children uh 10 with his first wife and then if that wasn't enough nine with the second um and my grandfather came somewhere about the middle of the other nine Um, and so when you have 19 kids and certainly that takes a period of time for them to come in the home and out uh, there wasn't a lot around and so he learned very early on about work uh, and so he worked very hard even from what we would deem at this point your kid ought to be playing he was out t- taking watermelons out of a field and throwing them on a truck like just that kind of that hard work e- e- effort to come across uh, and began to provide and, and even obtain what he needed uh, as a kid he I'll talk about later he, he had a a food servicing truck and one of the great joys of my young life was getting to go with him right you get to be on the big truck get to deliver the crackers and stuff and one day I showed up to work with holes in my blue jeans at that point he sent me back home I had to change and then became the story they began to tell the first pair of blue jeans that he ever had that were like actually his he had to finance them down at the local store they cost 25 cents and so he had to go and he would work and he would earn his five cents every week and he would come back and he would pay off his blue jeans. And so the idea that I would choose to wear blue jeans that had holes in them was just mind-blowing to him. And so he began from there that process of just figuring out life and learning. And so uh, as he would learn, while he was there, he'd learned how to be a butcher because that's how you had to eat. Uh, and so there came a point when he figured out, hey, I can't, I can't survive here right i've got to move and so he moved to the big city with his aunt in dallas and then when he got there he began to work as a butcher and then eventually he got a job for nabisco when he delivered crackers and then he started his own cracker business um and then from there he had started his own restaurant and it just became this process of trying to obtain information to learn things and to figure out how things worked and for me that dude he was my idol like, I wanted to be like him. And at front, so from an early on age, I looked at that and thought, man, I've just got to be like that. But as it occurs, we have the saying, like, you don't want to meet your heroes. It's similar to that. But as we continue to grow up, we go, you know what? Maybe he didn't know everything. Everything. Like He knew a lot of things. There were a lot of things that I admired about him and thought, man, I want to be just like that. But as we continue to grow older, as we figured out "Hey, he's just a man, he's just figuring it out as well, I deemed there were certain things that, well, maybe they were off. Like they started in a good place, but they didn't necessarily end up what we would deem to be true and correct. Prime example of that. We were fixing something in the shop one day. It was fixing a tractor or something apart on there. And there was a piece of metal that he was cutting with a cutting torch. Now he had it in a vise on one end. But my job on the other end was hold the other end. Now not with your hand. But you're holding on to it with something. And as he is cutting it, a piece of the hot metal drips off of the piece of metal and falls on his foot. Well at that point it burned his foot. And your natural reaction is that you... Wave away. Well, the problem was he still had the cutting torch in his hand. And at that point, he waved the cutting torch over my arm. And in an instant, suddenly I had no hair on my arm anymore, and it was red. We were both shocked. We're looking at it like, that just happened. Like this, his immediate response was, here. He reaches on the shelf, pulls out a can of WD-40, and sprays it on my arm. I've said nothing at this point in amazement of like, what what are we doing? And his response was, it just burnt the oil out of your arm. We're just gonna spray this back on and that will fix it. And the look, I don't think that's how that works. Like, there's a lot of wonderful things you can do with a can of WD-40, but nowhere on that can does it say apply back to your burnt skin. And that look of going, this, how do we get here? Like th- this, this, no, it doesn't work. And I fear that sometimes we, we take that approach, not just with, with life, but sometimes that becomes the approach with our faith. That we start out in a good place. Like we start out, with, you know what, I want to accept Jesus Christ. I, I want to repent of my sin. I want to, I'm asking God, come in, forgive me, save me. God, I'm giving my life to you. And we start out in this really good place. But somewhere along the way, we began to kind of trade this pursuit after God, and just we almost began to kind of take a common sense approach to our faith, and go, "Well, I'm sure this will work. I'm sure this seems like Jesus. I'm sure this is what He would want me to do." And we just began off down a road that one day reveals to us, "Wait a minute, this doesn't work." And I, I, I find that to be that story to be way, way too common that somebody along the way that maybe one day they sat in a church service and the preacher stood up here and they they gave an invitation and they thought you know what that sounds good i got to do that and they came down front and they prayed a prayer and then they left that place and they just thought well what would god want me to do now well this works this sounds good and we just start walking along instead of pursuing after god's word and begin to pouring into it going god what is it that you want for your life that I don't want to do this deal just off what I think would be good because that's what led me to the point of this great realization that I, I need you. And so I don't want to simply just pursue after what I think is right, but I want to turn to God and I want to turn to his word that I may confidently look at this and go, God, I know that I am doing. I know that I am being. I know that I am following you with all that you have called me to do. If we look at this, Paul, as he relates to the Philippians, he's gonna help us to see that our salvation is much less of an event, but more like the beginning of a journey that will continually transform us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to stand with me as we're in Philippians chapter two. We're gonna start in verse one. Philippians chapter two, verse one. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today and it is our desire that, God, that we not understand your words simply by our own common sense or by our own uh, simple work. But, God, we come before you asking that you reveal to us, that, God, that you speak through your word, that, God, that we may follow you in obedience from this day forward. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So to give us a bit of background on where we're at in Philippians, I know we spent a long time in Mark, and so as we began to kind of approach different books and begin to look at that, it's important that we kind of grab hold of that things are are, are different from Mark. We've moved on past then, and now here we find Paul writing to the church at Philippi. Uh, And so there's some kind of context that will help us to see uh, what it is that he's doing and how he's approaching that. So uh, it begins the letter that it's Paul and Timothy uh, usually there you're going to find that Paul an apostle of Christ here but here he uses a different word that he calls Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus Uh, that becomes important because as we read through the book of Philippians uh, that's a bit of a theme Paul is going to talk about being a servant. Certainly, as we read just a minute ago, we're going to talk about Christ being, Jesus being the servant of God. But also, he's going to call us into this idea and this kind of lifestyle of servanthood. And so, uh, Paul, from there, he, he's writing from prison. Uh, and so, Josh, a couple weeks back, referenced kind of some ideas about what prison was like. And so, that certainly would have applied there uh, for Paul. And so, he's telling them, he's thanking them for the support that they have given him. And so they've certainly done that either through money, through support. they brought food. They've been visiting. Uh, they, there's been this relationship that is established there. Uh, and so as he thanks them for that, then he is, I'm, I'm so grateful for what you have done, but don't feel bad for me. Even though he's in prison, he immediately turns and goes, but this has been a good deal. There are very few instances in which prison we look at and go, that's really, a, that's really what I was aiming for. But here, Paul looks back and goes, hey, this is good because me being in prison, this has brought about the advance of the gospel. So Paul has taken this difficult situation that he's found himself in, that God in many ways has placed him in, and now that he is there, he's going to go, look, but this wasn't bad. Now certainly the circumstances aren't always pleasant, but the situation that he finds himself, he's going, look, this has been good. Like there has been good that has taken place here. That's a lesson certainly for all of us, um, but Paul is certainly rewriting that today. And in verse 21 is a verse quite common that we hear of that certainly kind of describes where Paul is at uh, in this journey. For, verse 21 read for us, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we'll put that on shirts and we'll, we'll, all kinds of places. But this describes to us in much the way kind of Paul's attitude from where he's at in prison, and this great almost angst within him. On one hand, if I live, that's good for for the church and for everybody else. But if he dies, that's gain for him that he goes to heaven. As we kind of look at Philippians and, and Paul here, this relationship with Philippi, it, it's much like a family, and Paul talks to them in many ways like a parent would talk to Uh, i think we find here in chapter one we can almost uh, it's important for us to recognize that that in scripture we don't really get inflection right so we we just kind of read it it's kind of words on a page we don't know if he was excited saying this or if he was kind of low about saying it but i believe that you can read this and in some ways the way paul addresses them sounds like a mom who's been with her kids maybe a bit too much like she loves them wants the best for them but sometimes you're driving me nuts, right? And so we catch that. Verse 22, it says, For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to p- depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary on your account. What is that saying to a kid? I'd like to just leave you in the ball mart at Walmart. Like I'm just going to put you in there and I'm going to go do my shopping and I'll come back and find you in there later. But I realize that's not for, that, that's for my good and not for yours. So what's good for you is for me to keep you in this basket and keep dragging you around this place. That almost seems much how Paul is going, look, I love you, but I'd like to go home. But it's better for me if I stay. Or at least it's better for you if I stay. And so he, he continues with him and he goes on... Uh, but to remain in the flesh is much more necessary. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He's telling them like, I, I, I love you. I want the best. But my job going forward is to help you see they, th- there's, there's some problems and I'm gonna lovingly walk you through those and as we do, it's going to draw all of us closer towards him. And so as we begin to uh, walk through this, really here in chapter 2, I think we can begin in this way, that salvation through the gospel is not a singular event, but rather the process of a lifetime transformation. Let me say that again. Salvation through the gospel is not a singular event, but rather a process of lifetime transformation. Transformation. So what do we mean by that? Well, let's look to the word. Um, we'll give a slight plug here to the hermeneutics classes that are taking place. Uh, in your Bible, there's numbers. In the original text, there's no numbers. Um, and so the numbers really work to kind of help us kind of formulate thought. It certainly helps us as we begin to teach. Uh, and so if we to come to Paul and go, hey, in chapter 2 in Philippians, you said, he'd be like, mm, where's that at? So really his thought really in this process begins uh, back in verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And so he's calling them into he's telling them, look I'm not asking you just to hang in there for today he's going I'm calling you to a lifestyle change here so when we begin to accept Christ into our life this this can't be something that that happens for a little while and then fades away or even as we begin to look at our life God does not call us to kind of ride these waves if I'm following what God wanted me to do here and then I kind of pursued after some other things but then I came back like that's not the picture that Paul is presenting to them he's going look this deal is not about we're going to just up and down but that we are going to begin from this day forward and we're going to pursue after him and nothing will stop us until death and at that point we just meet him and then it just takes a whole nother level And so he's helping them to see this. Look, we're not talking about a one-time thing, but we are going to pursue after a lifestyle. And so that gets us here to chapter two and verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul begins to help us to understand how is it that I, in some ways, that I can begin to know how to pursue after Christ. How do I know that he's done something in my life? And so there are some things that we begin to take hold of. So if there's any encouragement in christ now the language here helps us to see that that each of these kind of aspects that he's explaining to us there whether it's encouragement whether it's comfort love participation in the spirit affection or sympathy all of these things are being pointed back to in christ so he's not saying look if you've just ever had any encouragement if you've ever had any comfort from love any participation uh if you've you've done anything with god if there's been any affection or sympathy like then, then you're good No, those are human experiences that we experience on a very level, right? God willing, at some point you've experienced encouragement. If not, you are a twisted individual, no doubt. Because that's part of how we respond to, right? We look at our children. When they do something good, we encourage them encourage them please encourage them when they do things that are well rejoice in those things i know that it's simple when they do the head things that you think i'd like to snatch you up right now those are easy to jump on but when they do the good things we look at that and go hey that was good you did right there we we can all do that but can i tell you that all the encouragement in the world will not lead you to pursue after christ more it's only this encouragement that comes through him how do we know that you can continually tell your kids hey we need to go to church we need to read god's word we need to do all these things but what happens when they're 18 and they head out of your house statistics tell us that a vast number just go was it because you didn't encourage them to do it no because there is an encouragement that comes even beyond what mom and dad have told you to do that there's an encouragement that comes through Christ. In fact, it comes only through Christ. But it doesn't start there. Uh, there's, it's also this encouragement in Christ. But we can insert in Christ, after each of these, any comfort from love in Christ. Have we experienced the love of Christ? Have we understood that level of comfort? Not just the, the comfort that your, your sweet fly honey gave to you that you thought, oh, I feel magical and I'm in love. No, he's going, look, it's deeper than, than that. He's going, that love, if if you've experienced that, any participation in the Spirit, at any point have you surrendered and done what God has called you to do and had that experience, that you have participated in what God has done? I can tell you today, I'm standing here today because of it. There have been points in my life when I was obedient to what God did and I realized, wait a minute, I want to keep doing that. That all the other things that I've ever pursued after they pale in comparison to those moments when I've been able to stand back and go, I know today I did everything that God wanted me to do. Like I accomplished the task. I was obedient to where he led me. It is in those moments that I'm, that is a participation in the spirit. That is, an, as it goes on, an affection and sympathy, that there's a comfort from that love, that there is an experience in knowing Christ that is beyond anything that we can reproduce as humans and I think that is what is significant as we walk through this that we're we're not asking that God's not calling you go hey look I'm just trying to give you uh, your best life I'm not just trying to make sure that things always go well but he is inviting us into a relationship going I'm going to do and be in you what you will never be able to be in yourself you will never be able to accomplish all that God is calling and desiring for you to be you'll never do it It's, it's impossible And here God is calling us to that, going, hey, I'm I'm, I'm inviting you into this life that ultimately will be eternal. And so he tells him, look, if if you've had any of those things in Christ, then his words are complete my joy by being of the same mind. Well, how's that working? Because that's Paul going, look, I've experienced all these things in Christ. And what completes my joy in you is that you came along and got it too. Right? Isn't that that great moment when your kids, when they're not around you, and they do what you've told them to do, and you had no influence on it, they just did it. That is a pride and joy of parenthood of going, praise Jesus, they heard something. right? And they do it. That, that's Paul here going, look, this is it. Like If you followed me, if you've gotten any of that, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being, being in full accord of one mind. Now, What's also begins to be revealed here is there begins to be this motivation, right? In many ways, it starts with what's your motive, right? He's telling them that because of Christ, we're going to do all these things. Not because they make you a good person, not because they make you a good citizen, He's going, all this is pointing us back to Christ. And so each of those phrases, they're qualified by being in Christ. And so if you are in Christ, therefore your natural desire begins to be this, that I am going to be uh, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. It's because of Christ we get along. It is because of Christ that we desire the same thing. How else will this group of people come together as a church and attempt to accomplish anything apart from that our same mind and heart is pursuing after Christ? Because as we all pursue after the same thing, suddenly we don't have nearly as much conflict. Suddenly we don't have nearly as hard time getting things done. Why? We're all pursuing after the same thing. Why? Because we've all experienced these things. There's been this encouragement, there's comfort and love and participation, affection and sympathy. We've experienced all those things and we're going, hey, we've got to keep doing this. We've got to go. Let's keep this moving forward. And so it goes from there in verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. There are certainly moments in life when you can do something that is unselfish. But ideally, all of us have done that. You can do that whether you're obedient to Christ or whether you're just trying to be a good person. We, at some point, have all been able to do those things. But here, Paul is telling them, look, look not, not just do some things. He's going, but I'm inviting you to do all things. Like that we are beginning this process of life transformation he's going look i want you to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit can i challenge you apart from christ you can't do that you can't do that for a lifetime that can't become the marker of who you are we will fight against that all the time there is a part of us that continually desires to pursue after sin the desires to pursue this that, that my life is about me and what I accomplish, and we're going to fight that to the end. but when there is Christ in our life, there is this resounding voice of going that's not who you are that's not what we do we're pursuing after something greater, and so if we find man it's it's hard for me not to pursue after my own self it's hard for me to be humble it's hard for me to seek what is best for someone else and not my own those become markers that we begin to look back and go then who is christ to me what is it that he has done why is it i continue to get mad why is it i continue to pursue after these things that are broken and he's challenging to look i'm calling you to something else something far Greater, so let each of you look not only to his own interests but to the interests of others. I think, again, our children uh, present a good example of this. I have found that there are a few small children, maybe even all children, who are not allergic to money. Your children at some point have obtained some form of cash. And immediately, if your children are anything like mine have been, that the moment that it enters their hand and is into their pocket, it it sets ablaze. In fact, I believe it is physically burning them that they have to get rid of this. I I have to use it. Now, normally, if your child is anywhere in the same realm of mine, it's usually not been a large sum of cash. Uh, Maybe they got 20 bucks for their birthday. Uh, maybe it was a Christmas card or whatever. And so as they begin to get that, they think, man, I've, I've got to use this. I've, I've got to get rid of it. In fact, if I kept it, tragic things would happen to my life. I, I'm pretty sure life would cease to exist. And so therefore, they, at some point, they bargain with you and they go to Walmart and they think, I've got to spend all of it. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's a rule that Walmart has that no small children can leave with money. Uh, and so they just pursue that. And so they have to buy things. But they... they rarely i would venture to say never buy anything good there's nothing good that comes from a child having twenty dollars at walmart they don't purchase anything that lasts it all ends up being junk at our house one of just the vein of my existence growing up as they were small children was that slime that you could buy right if you got three bucks left in your wallet and you got to get rid of it slime it fits the bill and slime sounds great. In the car, it's fun. They're playing with it until eventually they figure out, this is nasty. It's, it's on me, but it's not on me. It's not there. I can't see it, but I, I don't feel good anymore. Um, and so then they have to take that, and then they have to drop it. And at that point, it picks up everything, right? Yet, it's amazing that it can pick up everything in your car, but your car is still dirty once it's removed, and then for my children, what they felt they had to do is you take it. Well, if I don't have anything to do with it, let's just throw it and stick it on the ceiling. And so that white ceiling can now be stained with whatever multicolored slime that you had. There's just nothing that, that, that comes from it. it. It just doesn't last. And I fear that sometimes that's the same story that we tell with our faith that it was good in the beginning, and I thought, really, if I just give to this, like if I, if I bring this into my life, it'll be great. But eventually, it just turns like that, that yucky slime. And so, as a church, we, we've done our best to try to work to make an effort to address that. Uh, if you've noticed, we, we changed the way that we present Jesus to people. You don't hear anymore, we don't present the sinner's prayer anymore. Um, There are times when we will reference that, and uh, I want to be very clear with you. There's reasons to why we do that. In starting, the sinner's prayer is not in God's word anywhere. There's no point in Scripture where we go, hey, we pray this, and when you pray this, this equals salvation. Now, it is also fair to say that as we pray that sinner's prayer, that we, we are obedient in all the things required for salvation. That there is an acknowledgement of our sin, there is repentance from our sin, there is complete, I am trusting in Christ for that, that we are asking and doing all the same things, but it has been far, far too tragic that somebody prayed a prayer and thought that's it. Now I've trusted Christ, now I'm a Christian, now I'm just going to go on with my life. And that's not here. That's not anywhere close to anything Paul's even beginning to reference. He's going to go, you pray that prayer, you ask, those things in many ways, God's going, yes, you need to do those things. But that is the beginning. That is nowhere near, this is, we're going to do this event, we're going to pray this prayer, and now you're good. It is that prayer begins the process of God going, we're going to transform every part of your life, and as we do it, it's going to take your whole lifetime. There's never a part where we go, well, now you got it all. You're fully Christian now. Go change the world. God goes, no, we're going to start here. And as God begins to change in you, then somehow he uses your messed up change to go begin to change somebody else's life. And this, it looks like the slime. It's got all the junk in it. And, God, and the more we keep playing with it, the, just, the nastier it gets. And God goes, will you let me take that from you? It's gross. Let's... I'm going to make something really beautiful out of it. And if you've had slime, nothing beautiful comes from that. It would clearly take the work of the Lord. But that's what God is doing in us. I remember as a child, being about eight years old, uh, and I referenced earlier some of those difficult times in family. And I'd been through one of those. And I'd prayed for relief. God, help me. This can't be life. This can't be what my life is supposed to be like. And I sat in a service just like this. The preacher prayed a sermon, and as a preacher, I really wish I remembered more of the sermons I heard, but I don't know what he said. But I know that he invited people to come trust Jesus, and I walked down that aisle. And a few days later, I sat in those green leather chairs in his office, and he told me the gospel, and I said, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. My way ain't working. I want his way. And I prayed one of those prayers. But from that day to this day, I just keep praying that prayer. Of God, going, look, I see that I'm broken. Like, I didn't fix it, but I'm pursuing after you. God, I want you. And so this wasn't something that just happened, but this is something that has been happening. And in your life should be the same. And can I challenge you? If that was you, you were that child. You went through a VBS. You went through whatever and you prayed that prayer there. Keep praying. it. Don't stop. Keep pursuing after what God continually leads and he's going to say that as he begins to work and will through you. That we continue. It's not something we once did and then maybe we'll come back to later. It becomes something not that we did but now something that we are. And we begin to walk through life in light of that so Paul seriously does not or certainly does not uh, stop there but in verse 5 he begins to kind of explain to us much of the depth and much of who of what it is that it means for us to pursue after Christ and so uh, we can say it in this way that salvation is a process of transforming our lives from a rebel to an obedient servant salvation is a process of transforming our lives from a rebel to an obedient servant. Verse five reads this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grass, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now in those verses there is a lot. And in some ways, sometimes we can, we can read through that and go, I'm sure there's something there, but I'm not quite certain. But certainly when it gets to verse 9, uh, you ever been in here and Josh says something sometimes? And maybe you didn't hear what he said before that, but whatever he said at that point made you think, I just missed something. I was supposed to be paying attention. I dozed off. I looked at my phone, did whatever, and thought, I've missed something. And I, I, I missed something important. I'm going to need to go look back. Right? That's what happens here in verse 9. He's going to look. Therefore God has highly exalted him on a cross. Or exalted him and bestowed on him that the name is above every name. That every, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. That's heaven. That's earth. That's below. All of them. What does that do? That signifies for us that what has taken place just before this has said something big. Something that we need to grab our mind and our heart around. And so in order to do that, it's... It, we're going to have to do some language stuff, right? So if you're not an English major, hang in there with me. We're going to walk through that. But in order to try to help us get there, I think I've got an example. I think that for many of us, the idea of becoming a parent sounds like a good idea. We have these images before we have children of this is what it's going to be like, right? We've, we've volunteered down in the nursery. We've been down there in the children's ministry, and we thought, well, these children, they're just bad, Um, my children they'd never be like that in fact I see all the things that these other parents are not doing I would not do that in fact what they ought to be doing is this and so we insert that and in foolish times we actually tell another parent those things but what we find there is that this idea of what I thought I was getting into is so so much more than what I just kind of got on the surface. Right, but childhood tells you this, right? Birth, birth is your opening to this may be more than I was bargaining for. Uh, In our house, um, on three occasions, we have talked about having children. Um, We found after the first one that we have real firm conversations about whether or not this is what we want to do next. Right? And so when it came time for us to go, you know what, we think it's time for us to have children, I remember, this is at least my version, we had one conversation about it, and by the end of the next month, we were in the game. (laughs) Like, it was, so we don't really have, like, "Mm, do you think we could try? Those words don't happen in our home, right? Because once we entered into that game, we will be in that game very shortly, and things are going to progress as they do. Um, But for us, things didn't go like, maybe like everybody else did. Uh, and so, uh, as a young young man with no money and just not a lot going on, Alicia ended up being in the hospital twice. Bella decided to make her presence known about eight and a half weeks early, and I began to very quickly going, "Wait a minute! I didn't I didn't know about this. I didn't know it was going to be this big." And so, this introduction into what I thought was going to be this smooth transition suddenly got a Really rough, really quick. And so Bella spent about six weeks in the NICU, and then they sent me a bill. Well, let's just say I can't afford that bill, and so thank you for the people of um, the citizens of America for paying for that one. But it was somewhere around about $800,000. Now, when you're not making a lot of money, and you see that bill, and you think, well, this, this is impossible. Like This, this can't happen. But, as every young parent does, we go, I'll figure it out. And so we began to figure things out. And then later we decided to do the same thing with Cooper. Again, it happened fairly quickly. Um, and then Cooper came about, I think he was six weeks early, uh, and his six weeks cost somewhere north of a million. And I began to think, hey, we had a real conversation. I don't know if we ought to do this anymore. <laughs> um, we, we can't afford this <laughs> anymore. And if they ever actually make me pay one of those bills, we are, we're done um, but it didn't like it didn't stop there. It wasn't just it wasn't just we had them born and then we fixed everything else. Everything was great after that. No, like they they kept taking all my money. They kept taking all my time. They kept taking all my sanity. Like like it just it just just keeps going. And from the outside, we look back at that and go, that's not a very good deal, right? Like it just doesn't seem to work. And there's plenty of people out there that go i'd never have kids because i don't want that but the vast majority of us once we have them there is something there that we don't find anywhere else there's something about having a kid there's something about that relationship that is just simply different right that for some despite all that they have cost me all that they have done i love them more than anything i can experience In fact, I would say that that has been the greatest experience of my life is having these individuals who suck all of my life out. (laughs) It, it It doesn't compute. But can I tell you that what we're going to see here about God and specifically about Jesus and who he is, it doesn't make sense. Nobody signs up for that deal. But he does. And in him choosing to be who he becomes. There is something in that relationship we find nowhere else. And so let's begin to look through what it is that Paul is trying to explain to this. So he tells in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So again, he qualifies, all that he is asking you to do is because of what we have found in Jesus. Not on your own, it's through him. So verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this for us is one of the clearest pictures for us as to what it means to describe and to understand the deity of Jesus that here what we are going to understand is that Jesus is not just a good man, that Jesus is not just a guy who followed all the rules and never messed up, but here Jesus is God as a man. So how do we begin to see that? So we see here in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, so we're going to see this here in a couple of times. We're going to use the word form there. Uh, now there are a lot of times that we can look back to the Greek language and that will kind of help point us as to what that means. Not so much the case here. Form means form here. So how do we begin to understand that? Well that's where we're really going to use the context uh, that is around us to help us to understand what it means to have the form of God. Now, as we use those things, form is used several times, but also he references God. And really, as we're looking at the word God there, what has helped us to understand is that we're talking about God the Father, right? So we've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what makes up the Trinity for us. So as we're talking about when he says it was in the form of God, we could read in there in the form of God the Father. So distinguishing there is difference here but yet they are the same God. How do we see that? Because verse 11, when it says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So we'll see that reference often throughout scripture where we'll say it's not just God, but it becomes God, the Father. And so we're seeing here that what he's saying that he was found in the form of God, the Father. All right, so we can kind of grasp that. They're both God, okay. Well, then what happens here in the next verse? Next part of the verse. It says, Who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, how does that work? How is it that you are God, but being equal with God, that's not something that you can grasp? Well, that seems to be a problem. All right. Well, then let's look at what that's saying here. Really, that end kind of comes down to this equality with God, a thing to be grasped. It's that idea of to be grasped. What does that mean? That can mean really two things it could mean that that Jesus is is aspiring to be God and so God is up here and he's pursuing after his life and he desires to to grab hold of and to grasp what it means to be God and therefore be God himself or it could mean that as we begin to walk through it grasp means it's not something that Jesus is aspiring to be but it is something that he is choosing to pick up and so that, those are obviously two, two very different ways of looking at going, okay, well then what does it mean for him to follow through and to, to not count equality with God something to be grasped? Is this something that he is pursuing after? Or is this something that he is and yet choosing not to pick it up? So other scripture helps us understand this. Uh, that in Colossians 2, 9, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So hear that again. The, the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What is that telling us? He's going, because it's not that Jesus is aspiring to grab something, he's not a trying to be God, but that is, he is fully God in himself. So therefore, when we look at what does it mean for equality with God, a thing to be grasped, this is not God or Jesus pers- trying to reach and trying to be God, but this is Jesus going. Every bit of who God is, is right here and I can pick it up. It's not something that I have to find. It's not something that I have to work to become. But it is something that I have chosen to lay down. How do we know that? It says, verse 7 there, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's important we see that there, form. That word's going to be used again. So what is it that he has emptied himself of? Because we think of God and God being complete, God being full. And so here we have this image that he has taken on the form of God who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So therefore there is something that, God is, that Jesus is laying down that is choosing not to pick up and therefore that same thing is what we see that, that he has emptied himself of. So what is it that he has emptied himself of? Well, I think that maybe is more clearly explained to us uh, over in the book of John. John 17, 5. In John 17, finally, we find here Jesus, as he is preparing uh, for the cross, as we are uh, going through that experience, he says these words. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So as he is pursuing to, to lay down his own life, he gives us this reminder that, look, just because the form of who you see me today, that's, that doesn't tell the whole story of me that Jesus has been here since before the foundation of the world. But yet as he comes to be a man, he chooses to lay something down. What does he lay down? He lays down the glory of God. That in laying that down, he may become like us. That's where we find the next words there. Uh, verse, uh, in verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. Well, that's different. He didn't say that he was born uh, in the form of, uh, he didn't say that the guy was born exactly like man. He's saying was born in the likeness of man and specifically there, the born part of it, right? That's where we find the virgin birth becomes so significant that Jesus is like us, but he was not born in the same way. That, That Mary was a virgin when God, when Jesus was born. And so as a result of that, he was born like us, and that he grew in Mary's womb and was born, but his conception was far, far different than mine and yours. And so he was born in that. So what we began to kind of walk ourselves back through that, that here we find God as Jesus, Jesus, God is laying down his glory, that not that he can't pick it up, because eventually he will pick it up. But he is laying that down that he may be born in the form of God, that he may be God. As a man. That's what we find next. And being found in human form. Well, we said the same way that he was born in the form of God meant that he was fully God. Well, here, that same word translates the same way, that he was fully man. And that's really where this glory becomes, that, that's why that has to be laid down. Because if God, if Jesus takes on the full glory of God, it, 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 you can't have those two things together so he lays one down that he may become fully man and then he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name is it above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because this image of Jesus is God in all his glory. Laying a part of that down that he may become a man like me and you. Because we were worth it? No. In fact, we were the opposite of worth it. If we look back in Genesis, our own attempt, even in as Satan comes before Adam and Eve, there, his presentation to them is that you could be like God. And we look at it and go, that sounds, sounds like fun. Like, I think I would like to be God. And so we pursue after that in this rebellion against him of going, God, I know that you're God, but I think I would be a better one than you, so you just stay where you're at. I'm going to go do my own God thing, and I'll be just fine. But it doesn't work because... Hey, we're not God. And even in our attempts to be God, we're not very good at it. Have you seen the news? Whether the news is right or wrong, it ain't good either way. We're not very good at being God. And so he gave us perfection. We ruined it. Took it like it was our own and ran and said, I don't need you. And that same perfect God looked at us and goes, you need me. I'm going to come as you and I will pursue after you. Why? Because we have these redeeming qualities that are gonna make everything great. No. Because it tells us so, so much more about him than it's ever gonna tell us about us. That God doesn't come, that, that, that Jesus doesn't come He doesn't come in in so many ways because it was good for him. But he comes because it reveals him to us. That as he pursues after us, he's going, this is me. This is God. I I love you. I'm pursuing after you. I'm giving it all for you. That you may know me and that in knowing me, your life may be transformed that god may do in you what you cannot do on your own if we look at our example earlier our we are the children we take and we spend and we waste it on junk and god goes but i love you i will redeem you pursue after me and so i don't know uh, that we're able to grasp the depth of sacrifice the gospel requires. That as God invites us to, and Paul's telling them that, look, have this mind among yourselves. What is he telling us? Be like Jesus. That that level of sacrifice, that level of uh, unselfishness, that level of giving, that that level of being a servant, that is what he is inviting us to be. And I don't know that we can grasp all of that by walking an aisle and praying a prayer. Because there's just too much. It will require a lifetime of pursuing back into his word and going, I still don't get it all. But I still know it's good. I'm still going. And we keep pursuing more and more and more. That's why some 20 years in, I still keep learning things. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Now that you're awake, <laughs> one might think that after a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and as somebody referenced this week, all those books on my shelf—that must—you must you might just know a lot. And can I challenge you that despite all those things. I have a very small understanding of all that God is. He continues to be more and more to me. That even though I can explain to you what we read here today. I still don't understand it all. I don't get that deal. I don't understand why he would do it. But this isn't about my understanding of him. This is about who he is. And so therefore, as I come to things in scripture that are hard, that I go, I don't get this. I don't have to get it. That does not change who God is. But again, it says so much more about him than it does about about me. So, Paul doesn't stop there. He continues on. So we're going to look in verse 12. verse 12 says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now and not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure so that begins to continue to help us to see here that this isn't something that just Happened this time and ends, but this is a, it's this transformation that takes place. So uh, in my study this past two weeks, I came across the the story of a guy named Admiral James Stockdale. Now, somehow I missed this story because his story is, it's, it's my kind of story. It's the thing that I really like. So the story of James Stockdale is that he joined the Navy early on in life, I think even maybe before he even actually graduated high school, maybe there was a little bit of a, <clears throat> maybe didn't quite write the right name, down, right birth year down, uh, and jumped into the Navy, and so then as he gets in the Navy, uh, he does quite well, obviously his name is Admiral or Admiral, <clears throat> so therefore he's excelled to some degree. In doing that, he he joins, he becomes a fighter pilot and uh, does well enough that he becomes in charge of a squadron. Uh, His squadron is one of the ones that is sent over um, that as we begin to look at the idea of Vietnam, he is one of the ones over there and he is in charge. Um, And so the orders come down that uh, there has been an attack or there has been uh, some kind of activity, some kind of threat on our end. Um, And he is the one who will go and drop the first bombs that will begin Vietnam. And so he he tells this story of kind of not only what he's going to be asked to do, but he, he in many ways understands the implications of what he's fixing to do. Like that as he drops these bombs, this is going to start something that is not going to end quickly. It's going to last a while. And so... He begins to do that and as he begins to run missions after that, at some point he is asked to bomb a certain bridge and as he uh, goes in to fly in to do that, he's flying really low um, and it's foggy and it turns out that they knew that and he gets shot down. Uh, After being shot down, he's captured as a prisoner of war and he is put into a a camp uh, that we now know in reference as the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, The reason that we know that and that it was given its name is because it was that horrible. That the level of torture and things that he was put through killed most of the men that it, it, was, it was given to. But it didn't for him. Somehow he was able to endure. Somehow he, he did not give up. Somehow he was able to persevere despite these horrible, horrible things that were being done to him. And so what really drew me to that is we began to, how do, how do you survive that? How do you not give up? How do you not at some point go, this is too much? I don't know that I can do this. This is the quote that was given through a book that he wrote, with not only him, but him and his wife, uh, as they walked through that process. This was, in much the way, his mindset for how he began to deal with what he was faced with. The quote is this, and I believe we have the quote to come up. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. So there's parts of that that I really, in many ways, describe our own faith. He's saying there you can't confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end. So what is he saying there? For him, for as that prisoner, there has to be a faith, because he tells there, which you, you can never afford to lose this, that in the end, this is going to work out. In the end, I believe that I will survive, that he would make it through this horrible torture. And so he continues to, to have that faith. But what he's acknowledging here is that you can't afford to, you can never confuse that that's going to be enough. Like it can't simply believe that I believe that I'm going to make it or I did this thing and so I'm sure that it's going to work out. He goes, there's much, much more to that. He goes, it's, you can't confuse that type of faith with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. So how does that work with faith? That as we begin this process of salvation, as we begin faith in him, There is an initial belief that I am doing this because on my own, I will die. I will face the appropriate punishment of my sin and I will spend eternity in hell. But I have found that through the work of Jesus Christ, that God has come, that there may be another way, that I may be forgiven of my sin, that there may be hope and that hope will be eternal. That when I die, I will stand before him and he will look at me and he will welcome me in because of the sacrifice that Jesus has done on my behalf. That is a valid hope. That is the hope of every Christian. We have to have that. But we cannot confuse the fact that because I prayed this prayer or I did this thing that I'm just automatically I'm going to get heaven. And so whatever happens between now and then is inconsequential. It is not. It is the complete opposite. It is God going, don't confuse the fact that just because Jesus has died for your sin and that gives you heaven and everything is good, he's going to, it is going to be from that day forward that God is going to begin to do this process of working and willing in you of going, hey, we're going to look at this great lie of sin that you have given your life to. We're going to pursue after that. In fact, God is going to work almost systematically through your life. Going, Let's talk about this. Now that we got that straightened out, all right, now look here, it went here. And we're beginning to walk over and over and over and God keeps calling us back to our word and he's going, look, don't be confused. Don't be confident that just because you prayed this prayer and did nothing after, that your salvation is secure. Because the more I pursue after God, the more I don't understand why he did it, the more I understand I'm not worthy of any of it and my only hope is found in pursuing him. Do I believe that God came into my life and changed me at eight years old? Absolutely. Absolutely. I prayed and gave my life to him. And then I just kept giving it. And it is in that, I think that we begin to fulfill these words. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is he doing? He's inviting me into a life transformation that who I once was, I will no longer be. That what he has called me to be, I will continue to strive to be. That it might come this way, that salvation comes only through the work of God to lay down our own life, that he may transform us into life and life eternal. We are inviting and being invited to give our whole life to him. And that life can be found that as we pursue after him, and most specifically as we pursue after his word, that he may do in us what we would have never been able to do on our own. That we as his children, he will continue to move and move work and mold and do in us to bring something of this mess that brings glory to him. And that whole idea is crazy to me. But I found nothing greater to give my life to. And I pray that you do as well. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, there is so much of you that we cannot grasp. That God, despite our best efforts to try to figure you out and try to come up with the answers, there are far too often that we look back and go, I, I don't know. But God, the things that we do know that you have made clear to us, you have told us that you have loved us. That despite our sin and rebellion, God, you have come. That there may be freedom from that sin, that we may find hope and we might find purpose in you. And that God, that you desire to change our whole life. God, we ask that as we pursue after you, that God, we are simply responding to what you are already doing. So God, as we've been in this place today, maybe there are those who have, Maybe we've looked at it. Maybe our salvation rests simply in a prayer said long ago. But today, God, you begin to work and move in our hearts. And we go, God, we've, we've got to go. We've got to continue to give everything we've got to serve. God, I pray that we confess as we did once before. That we may give our lives to you and pursue you. God, maybe there are those in the room that we, we've been trying. We've been serving, we, we've been trying, but it, it, it's been hard Maybe we've hit those points when you're like, "Ah, I want to give up. May God maybe be reminded today, there is no greater hope than you. That we can give everything and trust everything to you because you are more than enough. So God, as we have been in this place, God, may you draw us close to you. May you pursue after us as only you can. That God, that we may be found faithful and obedient to you for there is no greater joy let me pray amen